What's up, Foot Action? This is your man, AP. I'm here, and we're checking out the April edition of Foot Action Television. This is my man, DC. Our goal is to bring you the hottest gear available for Foot Action. Almost 20 years ago, our paths crossed in the sneaker world. Since then, we have been on a professional and personal journey together. We made a lot of mistakes and had a lot of fun, even a few wins along the way. Our goal in all of this is to share experiences and insights so you don't have to make some of the same errors that we did. And in addition, we want to help you begin to think about things just a little different. So join us as we unpack our unsolicited and sometimes polarizing views on business, faith, and family with questions that make you want to unfollow. This is going to be the groundwork for all other episodes to come. And this is yeah. going to be the episode where we talk about like our past history together really yeah. quickly, right? So we got to do this in a short period of time so yeah, it's gotta be quick. Yeah. people don't get bored with us. But um, let's recap really quick where we came from and where we're going with this podcast. Um, so I'll start. I'm 22 years old. I just graduated from college and I have moved to Orange County, New York, and I am about to take my first job outside of college, right? So I had been working all my whole way through college and I got an opportunity to move to corporate. Wow, corporate. <laughs> From the store to the boardroom. Look at you. Exactly. So for yeah. those of you guys that don't know, um, Adrian and I met at a company called Foot Action. And it was owned by a parent company called Footstar Athletic at that time. And we had about 1,500 retail stores that sold sneakers. And so some of you guys um, are pretty familiar with sneakers and Foot Action. But for those of you that aren't, um, basically think like, uh, Dick Sporting Goods with no sporting goods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a not not like McDonald's, McDowell's from coming to America, like Foot Locker, Foot Action, right? So it's kind of a specialty yeah. retail, cool store, cool sneakers, and you know at that point, right? You're just happy to be a part of like get asked to work in this corporate office, right? Of like this yeah. amazing brand that you've been working in the store for, and similar to me, right? I, I mean, I'd intern in the corporate office. Uh, when I was in college and had no clue that this whole world of athletes, entertainment, events, sneakers, music, I mean, people will get paid to do this. I would have done the job for free. And so here we are right after college, we move up, right? I mean, I might've arrived in New Jersey from Texas, uh, maybe two weeks before you, I just graduated from Florida A&M and here we are stuffed in cube farm in, you know, middle of nowhere, New Jersey, working for foot action and told, Hey, this is your life. Let's go. <laughs> and I will never forget that day. So I walk in this large building that people have not moved into yet. And here is all six, four of Adrian packed into the smallest oh, cube in the building lovely. all by himself. Oh, and I think you were wearing a Jersey. I think it was white, but I cannot remember what team it was. Do you remember that? I don't remember the team. I, I distinctly remember, though, I did have the world's smallest cube, which is crazy because then the CEO's uh, daughter interned later in that year, and she had the biggest cube. So it was crazy. Anyway, we, we, we definitely know where I stood in the social order. <laughs> Not only that, I was the, one of the youngest people in the entire corporate office. I remember Daryl walking in, like, hey, I'm Daryl. 
and this bubbly, oversized personality, right? So like this country guy with the frosted hair, he made friends faster than like a fat kid chasing after a, a ice cream truck. Mm. I mean, this guy was just like this bubble of energy. And I remember you had shorts on, you had your, your Joe with you. You guys were engaged at the time. I was like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? <laughs> oh, it, it, I can like see it in my head, but it feels like it was forever ago. Yeah. And so you and I met at that moment and then our world's connected every day because we both worked in the marketing department. I worked as a low level communications person. And, you know, so as we talk about like unpacking some, you know, uh, we would say good advice, you know, uh, well-intended, but is terrible, right? Like I got a lot of that as an entry level person, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so I worked entry level in the communication side. Adrian worked entry level on specifically on the marketing side, but our world's connected every day. So, uh, Adrian and I along the way decided that one of the things that was missing in the foot action culture at that time was unique content, um, on foot action television, which Adrian somehow got put in charge of. How did you get put in charge of foot action television? I don't know. I think it was because I was the only like young, cool black guy in marketing at the time. And I think they thought, you know what, since we really want to go for an urban vibe, let's have the like, you know, well, 21, 22 year old uh, black guy help us pick the music for the stores, right? I was like, uh, okay. So I was like this video DJ, right? And I remember, we, and this is two years before YouTube, right? So con the whole concept of like content and videos next to programming, next to commercials, that was a TV thing. It, it wasn't mm -hmm. online. It wasn't like an in-store thing. So I, I think, you know, we had this idea, let's, let's make it a show. Let's make it, let's use this content, these people, I think 6 million people a month watch yep. that show in our stores. Let's have fun with it. And I don't know why they said yes. I still don't know how they approved it, but they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was really cool is, is that, um, we were early in that, right? So we were one of the first, even retail brands to do it, like before the Hot Topics or Wet Seals or even, um, I'm trying to think anybody, even Foot Locker. Like we were so yeah. far ahead of even Foot Locker at that time because the Foot Action and Foot Locker, we were competitors at that point, right? Like yeah, we were going at each other. And um, I think what was really cool is that we were ahead and that maybe that's why nobody cared what we did because it seemed like, it was a space that was unguarded and nobody else was doing it anyway. So it's like, well, they can't screw that up too bad. You know, I think that's it. I think we could innovate there because a, the real estate, the surface area was so forgotten. All they were doing was putting videos on anyway. So like the risk was relatively low, but you look back on it, you look, well, Hey, you know, they, they let me pick videos to put on that were going out to, you know, millions of customers a year. And then me and you were making content. Right. And so it was interesting how, they championed that. And I remember you know, us, you know, we didn't have any formal training. You know, I, I had journalism school. So you had a you know, graphic design background. I came from journalism school. So, I mean, I had done video and editing and writing before, but I mean, there wasn't like they gave us some media training and said, hey, here's the, a brief. They let us just kind of run with it, uh, which today I would never do with my team. Um, but now, yeah, it was great. So it's a good opportunity to get to know the store associates, to get to know the, 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 the store the fashion, but also the brand behind it. And, you know, mm -hmm. it became a, an award-winning show. And, you know, I mean, it, you know, you look back on it now, it seems so basic, 
but for that time, it, it was very well received. And I think for us personally, it bonded you and I. What's up, Foot Action? This is your man, AP. I'm here, and we're checking out the April edition of Foot Action Television. This is my man, DC. Our goal is to bring you the hottest gear available in Foot Action. We're going to take you deep inside the lifestyle that we as Foot Action shoppers live. We're going to show you interviews. We're going to take you through contests. Basically, we're going to show you everything that's hot on your block. <laughs> you heard the nerd. So check out the next video, and we'll get right back with you on Foot Action Television. You and I had to do this show on our own time after hours. And on the weekends, this wasn't something that when we went to Willie Smith, our at that time, senior vice president of marketing for the company, and we said, hey, we, we want to do this show that he was like, yeah, sure, that'd be great. He said, yeah, that's fine. You can do it. But you have to still maintain your day job and get all that work done. If you, and then you can do that. Yeah. So if you and I had just not been willing to do the extra work it never would have happened we never would have bonded like we did you know uh i don't think that we would have been set up as well as we have been because of that extra effort so what i would tell a young person in their role today is like just because what you're doing at your first job is not exactly what you want to do how can you approach the your boss the person above you and say hey i've got this vision to do this other thing if i get done everything that i've agreed to do at this business for my salary are you okay with me adding extra value on my own time on the weekends in the evenings whatever and i think any good boss is going to go sure go for it yeah you'll take it you'll take it yeah i remember the first meeting i had with our ceo at that time and this goes into the good advice kind of bad intentions kind of bucket right and but we took it. Remember, he sat, he sat me down and said, hey, you're in your 20s, work your butt off. Just like work, like basically just work. Just keep working, right? And so I took it to heart. We worked weekends, we worked, you know, nights. Hey, because neither one of us had like a family. We're married at the time. I was in Jersey. I mean, my friendship and social circle was, you know, about the, the size of a, a hamster cage. So I didn't have much to do. So I leaned so heavily into work. But I think the good part of that was the relationship we got to build together, but also that ability to take on a project and make it your own and add value uh, for the team as well, created a really, almost to the point where it became like an official role. So then, yeah. you know, when, when uh, we went through a reorg, you know, part of my official role and kind of your role became in-store media. So mm -hmm. we, we almost earned the right to, we created a role that didn't exist because of the of the opportunity we created so yeah you can make uh you know something from nothing if you push but you recognize the opportunity but yeah you minimize the risk for your boss but hey it won't distract from my day job let mm -hmm. me create value for you in my own time so i want to unpack that with you now because um and i know we might be getting ahead but um for people that don't know your day job now is that you lead Patron Tequila, and that falls under the umbrella of Bacardi. Um, and how many employees right now do you kind of have oversight on? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, uh, you know, head of global marketing for Patron Tequila, this humble, tiny little tequila brand. You know, thirty year old brand, and you know, we're, you know, we're, you know, we'll we'll, we'll do a significant amount of volume this year, right? So we're about a two and a half million case brand, 140 countries as well got 30 people on our on our marketing team who uh, I support and serve and then another 50 people down in Mexico on our hospitality team so this is all experiential this is all mm. people on 
site at our distillery in Hacienda, Mexico. So um, for those of you who aren't familiar with tequila, tequila can only be made in Mexico. And we have a distillery there, it's called Hacienda. And at the Hacienda, we host trips and we have 20, uh, a 20 room boutique guest house. So it's a hotel, like an Airbnb, but you can't actually rent it. Um, where we host people and it's the best way to enjoy our tequila. And so I, I manage the team that only takes care of our brand, uh, packaging, our bottle, our liquid, our marketing and digital, but also our experiences. How do people enjoy our brand? And so, yeah, I, to go from, you know, picking videos on a uh, in-store television network to uh, 10 years ago, I was writing tweets for Radio Shack. I, I kid you not. And now, yeah, so it's, it's a very nonlinear path, I, I'd say, to where I'm at now. And I think you have a similar story of like taking on these inelegant roles and piecing them together. And you kind of just cobble together this snowball of experiences that leads you to a great reputation, but also, you know, a really good body of work. Yeah. And I think that's what I kind of wanted to get to you, yeah. get from you and get you to unpack really quick. So, you know, you're at a senior level right now at a large company and you're leading 80 people at this organization, right? You got a young person or two young guys that come to you and they pitch you this idea to create something, right? What do you say to them now? Like as, as, oh, as yeah, the leader it. in I that position, it. what do you say to these two jokers? Yeah. Man, By the way, time. look at yeah. video of this stuff in the show notes yeah. so people can see how goofy we look doing this. Or, yeah. you know, I think we thought we looked pretty good at that time, but like yeah. in retrospect, I think, we, but. Like, what do you say to those two guys that show up in your office? Yeah, you know what? If, if I could, like, put myself in the shoes of somebody like me walking in, A, I think I'd want, and I get it. So even my team now, I won't use any names, right? Uh, we're totally anonymous. But I get, you know, I pitches all the time for ideas that people are passionate about. I think uh, as a leader, though, when you see somebody who has competency mixed with passion, you never stand in the way of that. You're also, you want to direct it and aim in the right direction but rarely will I shoot down someone that has competency and skill to deliver, but also the passion to, to make it good. And I think what me and you had, even though our competencies might've been questionable when we started, we had the passion, right? Yeah. And, and so I think as a leader, you always wanna uh, envision that because a good leader, or, and, to, and even a good manager, right? Managing tasks, projects, budgets, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Hey, I wanna make sure, you know, it's, it's you know, not distracting from work. It's not, you know, we have a budget for it. But assuming you check off those boxes, mm -hmm. I want to I want to engender that. I think a lot of what we do, especially in legacy companies, right? Foot Action was a part of a larger organization, part a legacy company. Uh, Patron's owned by Bacardi Limited. It's a 158 year old, you know, privately held, family owned company, right? So these are legacy organizations. Oftentimes, they struggle to create the value we create. So big companies or larger, more hierarchical companies struggle to do the cool thing, the new thing, because there's so much red tape. There's so much bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And so you got somebody coming to you who can be this kind of Navy SEAL, you know, uh, you know, deep covert ops team who can get something done quick. That's great. And so I, I champion it if you can minimize the risk, uh, but also you've got the passion and the competency to, to make it happen. Man, that is so good. I, I would even add to that, that, um, as a young person in an organization, find the thing that is low risk, but could be high reward. Meaning like if it goes bad, which there's a really good chance it's going to yeah. go bad, <laughs> right? That it doesn't cost you or the, the team or your boss or the organization. Like it doesn't cost them a lot, whether that's money, 
um, whether that's reputation. And like, if you're really honest, like us creating content for in-store video at that time, like if it had turned out bad, we, we just wouldn't have aired it. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. 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 It well, was, the difference. Yeah. You're right. It's the, it was a reversible decision, meaning if yeah. you did it and it didn't work, you just reverse it. Like, so it was, it was yeah. low risk. It's reversible. It was something that was controllable, uh, auditable. And yeah. And so it was the perfect Petri dish. Right. And I think now fast forward, right. 20 years later, you've got YouTube, social media networks, the, all these platforms are perfect um, incubation opportunities that we never had. I mean, we didn't have all these online platforms to be able to build some of these communities. I think now if somebody comes to me, I think the perfect way to build a business case is not, Hey, here's the plan. Approve it. It's coming in. Hey, here's the plan. I've already tested it. And so mm -hmm. that's where I think if I'm a young person in a corporation and a company wanting to create new value, I'd come not only to test it, but also to come back with the results. And so if you come back to a boss or, you know, your, your manager with the idea, but you've also done the scrappy work to test it, to get mm -hmm. feedback, to get actual insights from a community or a yep. consumer group, it's hard to argue with. So yeah, be nimble, be entrepreneurial. And I think that's what we had was we were too, we were too dumb to know how to do it right, but we were passionate enough to figure that out. And I think now if you ask us to do it, we'd probably come up with a thousand excuses because now we're almost too smart to fail. Whereas before we, we didn't, it didn't matter if we failed because we were just having fun. And so, you that's know, that, that's the part about it. Don't lose the fun work. Don't lose the joy in just figuring stuff out. I think right now we're so mature. We almost age out of the opportunity to, to really create new and unique, exciting opportunities. Well, the, the final takeaway thought for me on this, the whole thing, like our whole experience making video foot action was, is that when you and I pitched this idea to our boss and we got the yes, we got the approval, I felt like we had been given something so valuable. Like even at 22, I recognized like this is an opportunity, right? And you and I made the most of that opportunity. Even though, like tracking back, like it was low risk, high reward for our boss, Willie, at that time, right? It's like, if those two jokers make this thing work, great. If they don't, we just cut it, right? Yeah. But you and I felt like, like this is an opportunity. And I think we took it seriously. And like, we had a lot of fun with it. What I would also add to that is that it put us on a road to create content for the next 20 years. And that's what you and I have been doing. So for those of you who are just joining us on this podcast, what you will find about Adrian and I is that for the last 20 years, our jobs have really been to create content. Yeah, yeah, it's been the storytelling, right? So whether it was through the lens of uh, design, photography, the language of the web, the language of uh, video to create stories, or for me, right, for whether it's copy or uh, briefs that inform a vision to create a campaign, all of what we've done for the last two decades has just been storytelling for campaigns, for clients, and, and for communities in a way that, that, that was unique. But it all went back to that piece of mm -hmm. seeing an opportunity, building the content for an audience, and then uh, iterating forward, right? And so a lot of it is every month we, we learn forward. So, oh, this worked great. And we got better. And so I mean, I look back at some of the tapes and, you know, five or six months in, it's like, oh, we're tight. Like the, the scripting's better. This guy named, uh, you know, Ron, shout out to Ron. Ron was our camera guy. He was Ronnie a Ron. uh, guy in, in New Jersey who just 
you know, he would go with us and patient with us as we wrote our script right there in the store sometimes. And we did several takes and he edited it all together. And so, yeah, it was a great way. And the common thread was always telling a story, being informed by the audience, but always trying something new and different. And I think that's been a hallmark, no matter if it's a small brand or a big brand that we've both worked on. It's mm -hmm. been just telling that unique story, having a different perspective. So let me ask you this question. So the theme of this show is unfollow, all right? And it's when good advice goes bad, you know, <laughs> yeah. that the idea of not, of not being normal, that normal is not working anymore. Um, so to, to follow that thematic, um, what would you say was some advice that we got in our first jobs? Yeah. Right. That was well-intended um, or maybe it was around that time of our first jobs out of school that was well-intended, but now 20 years later in your career, Adrian, you're like, this, this does not work with the, this operating yeah. system needs, you know, to be updated. Yeah, no, I, I think I go back to my first meeting with the CEO um, at that time. Great guy. But I remember sitting in office, you know, you're, you're 20, right? You're out of college. Um, and you're, you know, you go into this immaculate office, this spacious, and, you know, you see pictures of awards and pictures of family and, and you think, right, you project, this is where I want to be. Like, what do I have to do when you're ever in the presence of somebody that has an office, mm -hmm. right? And not office as in physical office, but the office, like the, the role, the title, mm -hmm. right? And I remember asking like advice, right? And I remember, you know, him, a quote I used for a decade after that was, you know, he told me you know, the best way to predict your future is to create it. Hmm. And I took that and I put it on my wall. I said, oh, that's it. I took it as gospel, right? The best way to predict your own future is to create it. And I think it gave me this kind of achievement driven, not that it singularly gave me that, obviously it's informed by what you do in school and media and things like that. But I think we, it's so easy for us to make ourselves a hero of our own stage play. Yeah. where we're creating this and you know we're the center of this universe and it's very very um singularly focused on ourselves and i and now i flip i compare that with my dad who's a uh, you know now the pastor of a of one of the oldest historical black churches in fort worth texas wh hmm. where we live now who spent 30 years changing out vending machines and coffee machines while hmm. working in the church and now he's worked and he's been humble and submitted and like, and you like this whole servant hearted thing. I, I didn't, none of that. I didn't see that. The people I idolized in business were always guys that made their point. Uh, they were, um, they were vibrant, but they were like opinionated and dominant and they were white men. Right. Mm. Um, mm. And now you look at, does that work? Right. Does that work? Does that philosophy work? And does that approach work? as mm. work has evolved. And so for me, I, I, I spent a decade like repeating that to people. I told my team that, right? And now <laughs> I think I've unwound from that to know that, you know, creating my future isn't, predicting my future and creating it isn't what I'm here for. It's to mm. create a future that's better for someone else and doing it in a way that I've been called to do, mm. right? And, and, and it's not predicting my own future as much as it is submitting my future to a higher purpose and a higher calling. And if that turns out great and successful, good if that turns out where I'm in a service role and I'm not as publicly successful but I'm fulfilling my duty and, and my purpose that's fine too all right so one of the one of the other things that I wanted to talk about early on was 
making mistakes. Like, and let's just be transparent. Like, you know, when we were 22 years old and we're out the gate, right? Like what were some mistakes that we made? So, you know, we got some well-meaning advice that, you know, either you or I did or didn't follow. And, and again, like the, again, with the theme being like unfollow, like we are going to like take some of these traditional thought patterns and look at them a different way. But I also want to talk about areas that we failed in early on. Cause I think somebody looks at Adrian Parker now and all they see success, right? So quickly, like, can you give us a, a couple things that you feel like, man, I failed at that early on. And if, if a young person is listening to this right now, here's, here's a quick way that you can guard against that. Yeah. I think, gosh, the art of starting a job, you think that is a basic thing, how to start a job in a new environment. I have a new role. I just got hired, how to make collaborations, how to meet with your boss, how to negotiate timelines. These are things that you don't really learn in college. If you're lucky, you had an internship where you had access to at least the office environment, but I had no clue how to start a new job. And I face planted so many times on new jobs. And I started several of them. So after Foot Locker, I went on to Kate Spade. I was the director of marketing there. Um, you know, recruited for the role, role for me, rolled in there. I had all the answers. I ran, I think six or seven different fashion brands corner office in the Empire State Building. I was the man, but the team, oh my, half the team hated me, right? The resistance I, that I got, because I spent no time trying to build bridges. Uh, I didn't navigate the landmines. I didn't know about the existing uh, just blind spots or who liked who, and it was in the fashion industry, you know, and, and Kate Spade and company at the time. And so very, very political. The culture was very different from the culture I came from. I spent zero time trying to acclimate myself to this new environment. I spent no time trying to get uh, a sense of the terrain. I came in with a mission and that was the worst ever, right? And I think I learned, I went until, gosh, I'd say maybe four or five years after that, that I learned there are actual books. So one of the books I recommend, I actually buy it for anybody that works for me. So if you get hired by Adrian Parker now in the future, you already know, you get the first 90 days. It's one of the first and only books I've read that had a, a template, a plan for how to actually start a job. You get that from day one to learn what you don't know, to navigate what's new. And it, it's, it's been an amazing piece, but you think people, you think there'd be a more of a training curriculum for that, but no, you got to kind of learn on the job. It's like parenting. Nobody teaches you how to take care of a baby. Really? You kind of got to just figure it out, which I know you're figuring out again now. <laughs> at 40. So, all right. So break it down for me. How do I start a job? You know what? The, very first thing is to diagnose the situation, right? Is, is diagnose the company. So it's not even about your role. The first thing you want to figure out is like, what planet did I drop in on, right? Is, are, we, uh, are we successful? Are we struggling? Are we a high growth company? Are we a legacy company? Just knowing the terrain of like, what kind of company environment you in, and then getting back to your work group. Second thing is like, navigating the culture. Who are the approvers? Who are the people that have a vote in your success? Right? Who are the people who uh, who you have to partner with and building those collaborations? And those are things you won't ever learn in the interview. So the interview process doesn't set you up for success. Interview process sets you up to be assessed for the potential. And the, the you know bad stat is this: about sixty percent of people who are hired from outside of a company fail in the first year. Right? That's a, such a waste of time and effort, energy. And so your first job is to sit there and listen. Spend as much time as you can sitting in meetings and calls, 
and don't judge. Just take it in. Interview everybody, write it down. I've actually got a template I have now of every job I start every single time. I've got a whole file folder. I interview at least 100 people. I write down all their answers and I literally just learn and listen and I put it all into a, a deck and I put it in a chart and then I tell the team three months later, here's what I heard from you with no judgment, right? So I don't assess what I should do. I confirm that what I heard and then allows the team to come along with you. So it's not my job to be the hero of the company. It's my job to learn and serve. And so I can only do that if I can learn what people need and what they want as well. And so it's a great opportunity to just learn, just like be a journalist. And so since, you know, I was a J school person, I have a journalism degree. It actually turned out pretty well. So once I started doing that, I had much more success. But I mean, I'd love to hear from you, man. You, you, you've had some good jobs. I mean, from agency to brand side, client, whatever. I mean, you, you've had some pretty cool roles and you are a very passionate guy. So I'm sure as much as you make friends, I'm sure you have at least one face plant. Um, yeah. Oh, man. You know, I think back to like the first role that I had with you um, at Foot Action and, you know, our, our former boss, Lee Applebaum can probably attest to this, that, you know, at 22 in, in meetings, in group settings, right, I often spoke more than I listened, right? And when I did speak, I had no wisdom in my words. I had no wisdom in my words, right? I can attest to that. Uh, I can think, as you're talking, I'm thinking of like specific stories where yeah, you put your foot squarely in your mouth. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and certain <laughs> things will make people very uncomfortable, right? And so I think what I've learned is, is that if, if I was to go back and do all that over again, I just shut my mouth. Yeah. Right. Like let my work speak for itself. Like let the creative that I'm doing that's on the board, that's in front of everybody, like let it speak for itself. And then the second thing I would do is I would master the art of mirroring. And this is something that we've picked up later in life. Um, there's a book out there called never split the difference by Chris Voss. Um, it's become really big in the last couple of years, but he talks specifically about the art of mirroring. And this isn't a new tactic, but it's one that I wish I would have uh, employed earlier. And basically it is just repeating the person's last three or four words of their sentence with a question mark at the end in a way that's non-combative. And so it makes that person then answer the question or continue to talk. And so instead of me giving statements, I really just would have asked questions. So I really just would have mirrored what was being said back to me in these meetings or creative meetings and, and let the, the leader in our organization start to unpack it more so that they felt understood. Now, again, this is all retrospectively, right? So like, yeah. it's easy to kind of rewrite history for yourself. But again, like, I think I just would have shut my mouth and I just would have asked more questions um, specifically to let that leader speak more. Yeah, it's good. You know, it's hard, I think, I don't know if uh, female professionals have the same temptation but as hard as a guy, you feel like you need to be a know-it-all. Like they hired me, so I'm gonna prove. Yeah. And so I, I, I tell my new hires all the time, like we hired you, we know you're smart and brilliant and all the great things. We've seen your resume, we did the reference checks, got it. Don't prove that now. The first three months is not the time to prove how smart you are. It's the time to learn. Mm -hmm. Ask the dumb question, et cetera. For me, I, I didn't learn that till months later in life. I always wanted to prove that I was smart or that I could communicate or that I had an answer. And the challenge was as soon as you 
reach that threshold where you you think you're smart, you stop learning. Like you can't learn and fake being smart at the same time. Mm. And so I moved past the learning point. And you know that those first any new project, new relationship, new anything, it's a gift to just sit back and learn. And so if I could go back or any advice I'd give a younger person in their careers, just soak it up. Like don't be so concerned about being successful or proving your success that you miss the opportunity to just soak up like all the cues of your peers, your partners, your mentors. Mm -hmm. Just take that in, man. I, 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 but thank God, honestly, both of both of us have been so privileged. We had very patient leaders, very patient managers, and we still are friends with to this day. So yeah. a lot of our bosses are some are really close friends of ours because, and they've had the patience with us, so they've seen our progression. But they've also probably been pretty frustrated with us. Yeah. So unpack that one more time in case somebody missed that. As a new hire in a new role, what should you do for the first three months? First three months, you just listen. I think you got to pause if you can. Now, I think the reality is, and I tell people all the time, like reality is, you know, some job, they're like, yeah, day one, somebody just, somebody just quit. You come in, you got to fill the role, right? You get hired on the NFL team. You don't get three months to yeah. study the offense and read the playbook. They're going to put you in the game on Sunday. If you don't go, somebody else will, right? And, and so a lot of that is very circumstantial or situational. But as much as possible, take the time to just listen. Even if you have to do some tasks, like you can't just like phone it in from the sideline, but learn, just learn, ask questions, build relationships and be curious. I think that opportunity to learn the landscape mm -hmm. and figure out who defines success and who's uh, defining your success is so critical. And it's all basic stuff. Uh, but yeah, definitely take the time to learn from, uh, from relationships, but ask questions. Yeah. So you recommend reading the first 90 days. Who's that yeah. by? Uh, Michael Watkins. Yeah. First 90 days. Michael Watkins is the seminal book. Um, he's even written a follow-up companion book called Your Next Move. So your, uh, you know, not first 90 days is a great book for starting a job. Your Next Move is a great book for any mid-career professionals who you've been promoted. Maybe you're leading your peers now. Maybe you've got an international relocation. You know, like for me, I took a global role, right? So I'm traveling more. How do you get your family set up in a new environment? Um, so he, Michael Watkins, he's a great, great researcher. But he has great um, templates and great uh, structures for how to think about uh, new roles, but how to organize your inputs as well and help you kind of get the tools to succeed. And so it's one of the only few resources I've seen that does it uh, in, in a very uh, portable way. So I, I, I literally, I've, I probably sent his kids to college because I've, I've bought so many books of his. <laughs> I love that, man. All right. So speaking of books, one of the things that we want to do every episode is talking about what we're learning now. So the, the general idea in unfollow is, is that there's things that we're letting go of. There's things that we want to help you leapfrog over. There's things that we're learning now that literally we are learning right now with other people. Um, and they're exciting for us. And then the third thing is, is like, what we're leading, like what we're leaning into, what we're going to be leading, whether it's our families, whether it's our organizations, whether it's in our church, um, whether it's in our culture and our society, like what are we leading into? So the uh, number two on the list tonight is, is like, what are you learning right now? And I know you're a ferocious reader. I mean, one of the ways we, you know, we gift each other is we send each other books from Amazon all the time, which I love, but um, what are you learning right now, AP? Yeah, good question, man. I love the idea of unfollow, right? Letting go of all the bad stuff that doesn't serve you, 
learning what's new and then leading what's next, right? And I think we do that in our lives and business. We do it in our family lives, we do relationships. And I think that's just kind of what we're here for. And I think for me, I'm learning what's new is uh, really the real meaning of service and sacrifice. I don't think I I really knew what that meant till very recently in my life and business and in my family. You know, I think about, think about the people you admire and am I trying to emulate them? So I think about my dad, right? I admire him, but I don't necessarily want to emulate his sacrificial service, the work he's done, the submission uh, that he's done. So one of the books I'm reading um, is very apropos, um, Ravi Zacharias, who's one of the greatest apologists, you know, that has, uh, mm-hmm. you know, er- ever lived, just passed away um, a, f- a few days ago. So, you know, uh, prayers to his family, his community, and, and his organization. But I, it's funny, I, literally just two weeks ago, I picked up a book called Beyond Opinion. And I remember, you know, the whole premise of this is instead of fighting for your faith, just live it and living that life. And I think I've, I've learned that I can serve people by living my faith. Uh, I don't necessarily have to be the most vocal guy pushing mm. Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think you have to push and promote Jesus and the life and uh, the freedom that he's given us. But more importantly, man, I think I serve people by, by my, my daily living. And so I'm reading that book just to like really get a sense of like, what does God mean to me? Like, well, you know, and those just basics of Christianity because there's so much, you know, whether it's progressive or you're conservative or you're liberal or you're this or that, the white church, the black church, like everybody has a version of the church, a version of the truth. And so for me, it's really been about service and sacrifice by focusing on the basics of, you know, living my faith. And so the Beyond Opinion by uh, Ravi Zacharias, I think um, the late Ravi Zacharias has been a great book for me just to ground myself mm-hmm. and like, dude, what are you here for? What are you doing? How do you live your faith in a way that attracts people to God? How about you, man? What, 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 good. Are, you, uh, what are you learning? Um, I just finished up Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I think most of us have had that on our desk or in our briefcase for, yeah. you know, the last couple of months. And I finally got around to reading it. Um, it was, it was great. Like three nights, couldn't put it down, done, you know? Um, but what my big takeaway from it was, and and it's not written in the book, but I felt like the theme of the book could be the greatest commandment. And that was to love your neighbors yourself. You know, he opens the book with the Sandra Bland case and which is actually close to you in Texas. Right. And one of the things that we're going to talk about often on this podcast is race, you know, and there was that interaction between black police officer or white police officer, excuse me, white police officer, young white police officer and African-American female with out of state plates. Right. And so he opens the book in that way. And then as Gladwell always does, man, he makes you think about the things that we take as normal, right? The information that we're getting from, whether it's the media or the information that we're getting from our social media um, and not, not questioning, right? Like one of the things that he started to question was, was the confessions of terrorists by unpacking um, how we, uh, get that information from terrorists and what happens to the human brain. He um, unpacks the situation with the Stanford rape case, right? Um, and as a father of two daughters, um, man, that was a tough, tough chapter to read. He unpacks um, the sexual abuse that was happening at Penn State um, and uh, the um, 
Michigan State situation uh, with the gymnast and um, Larry Nasser. And again, as a father of daughters, right? Like these are tough things to read. And we don't question some of the things that are happening in these moments. And I think, man, it was just a really good book on a lot of levels. It, it talks about race. It's talking about, um, uh, it's talking about how, how we police people. It's talking about, um, you know, how we treat other human beings basically and how we gather information, but we're gathering without ever really loving them or talking to them. And I don't know, for me, it was fantastic. So highly recommend it. Talking to strangers, not the book. It's a good one. Yeah, I started it. I think I'm about halfway through. I've, I've, I've got to finish it. It is great. I mean, as Gladwell is, it's an instant, instant classic. Yeah. So you, so, so that's what's, you're learning what's new, right? To unfollow, we're letting go, we're learning what's new, we're leading what's next. Mm-hmm. What is next, right? So you're in a season of life, right? You've got a lot going on, right? I, I can't even, reading Daryl's resume would take an entire podcast. So he's a real estate mogul. He's flipping houses. He's a father of three beautiful children, one newborn, right? Uh, his wife, beautiful wife, Joe, right? He's taking care of her and, you know, she's going through her journey of, of health and recovery um, and all. Yeah, he's got a full-time day job as a director of marketing for Warren Giles, leather, leather company. Amazing leather, by the way. Um, so you got a lot going on, dude. So like, what's next? How do you find, how do you even find time to read? But what, what, what's next? What are you excited about? Um, I think the thing that we're most excited about right now is a new season of life. Uh, in the past 18 months, um, it has been a journey. Uh, we have been through uh, what most, I think would put most people on their back and then they wouldn't get up from. And, you know, today, by the grace of God, like we're up and we're fighting. You know, Joe has overcome uh, breast cancer. Uh, She finished up chemo treatments. She's went through surgery. She had a baby during that time um, in the midst of a global pandemic. Right. Um, And so I feel like that we are moving into a new season. I'm claiming that, you know, I felt that way last weekend. I feel that way now. And so as we talk about what does it mean to lead into that, um, I'm going to unpack the Enneagram stuff really quick. So one of the things that happened in the last three years was that my wife, Jo, got really into Enneagram training. And so she started teaching Enneagram to other organizations and um, other teams, individuals. She was hosting seminars here in our and just a 30 second overview what is the enneagram for those who are like what the heck is that is that yeah. like a horoscope what yeah great <laughs> question so enneagram is a um basically it is a, a a personality um test or overview that is ancient um it, you know it's hundreds and hundreds of years old it comes from monks essentially and there are nine different personality types And those personality types all have attributes. And those attributes really are just masks that we put on to be loved and accepted in the world. And what happens is that most of us don't even know that we're wearing a mask. And so this personality test or personality overview helps us to realize what that mask is and then to be able to remove that mask so that we can start to find, you know, who we truly are. And then understand that that mask is not necessarily bad. It's just, how, when do I need to put it on? Like what's healthy? 
and what's uh, what's unhealthy. And so, you know, in our household, we try not to weaponize um, the Enneagram. I think where the Enneagram has gone wrong is it kind of has has grown in the last couple of years in like pop culture is that it can be weaponized, right? People are like, oh, well, you're a three, that's why, or oh, that's what a one would do in that situation, right? No wonder you're angry. And so what I would say is it's just a way to find out more about yourself. And so literally I told Johanna this today. I said, you know, like one of the things that has been most meaningful for me in the last several years is submitting myself to your teaching, right? Like as her husband, I submitted myself to her teaching me this Enneagram and it has allowed me to be who I'm uniquely built to be. So I'm an eight on the Enneagram. And for those of you who don't know, um, the eight is considered a challenger. Um, and uh, I'll let you do your own research on what that is and what that Google personality it. type is. <laughs> yeah, Google it, exactly. But what an eight specifically has that no other number has on the Enneagram is they have a built-in engine. That engine is running at a speed that is unique to them. It's not to say that other types, you know, aren't, aren't strong or other types don't work hard, but what it says is, is that that eight just operates at a consistent 2,500 RPMs, right? While the rest of us are going back down to idle speed, right? And so that's who I am. And I never would have known that if that hadn't have been for Johanna. And so what that means is, is that when I walk into a room, I am at 2,500 RPMs and the rest of the room might be at 500 at idle speed, right? And so I have to be aware, right? Have to be aware of that. But I also have to use that as my special power. And so when it is time to move an idea forward, when it is time to move a business forward, when it is time to move our family forward, a podcast season, forward, all of it, your book, when it is time <laughs> all to of move it. your book forward, right? The eight, the challenger, the engine, right? Has to say, now is what I am built for. Now is when I need to get everybody moving in a direction. And so that's what I'm leading into right now. That's what I'm leading our family into right now is that we have been in this season where we have literally had to stop. We've had to rest. We've had to get Joe healthy. We've had to get the baby here. But now if I don't use this eightness, if I don't use this engine that is how I am built, how I'm uniquely gifted by God, right? then I am wasting my talents. I'm not stewarding my talents. And you and I will go into that so much more. But my job is to be the engine right now and to move our family into a season forward, right? And so that's what I'm leading into right now is just accepting who I am, how I'm built and saying, hey, in love, I love you. Get on my back. Here we go, right? Like that's we're good. going into a new season. So That's good, man. Yeah. I love it. A eight, a eight. Hey, me and an eight get together pretty well. That's good. I, I think, you know, I, I reflect on you guys' journey has been very um, admirable to see how you guys have embraced the Enneagram, but also applied it to your marriages and your friendships in a way uh, you haven't weaponized it. It's not a, um, it's not a uh, manipulation tactic or tool. It really is a way to love people how they need to be loved, but then yeah. bring them along yeah. to, to make sure they feel validated, but also that they know more about themselves. So I enjoy, uh, I enjoy sitting with you guys and talking about that. Um, no, that's good, man. They reflect on me. I'm, 
I'm in a very um, interesting phase, you know. So I think, you know, we're, we're recording this on, you know, it's uh, May 24th. It's a couple weeks after the Ahmad Arbery um, video that came out in Georgia of, the, yeah. you know, the young uh, black man who was, you know, just murdered. Killed. He was murdered. He was, you know, lynched while jogging, you know, and, yeah. um, in, in Georgia, in a neighborhood. And let's unpack that for people. Yeah. Like when, when we say lynched, when we see that word lynched, right? What does it mean to you as a black man? Yeah, it's, uh, it's mob uh, murder, right? So it's public murder that is sanctioned. So a lynching isn't just a murder or a homicide. A lynching is a public uh, assassination mm. meant to instill fear. Mm. It's symbolic. You know, Michael Brown's body in Ferguson, Trayvon Martin, the pictures that, are co- that came out of him. I mean, these black male bodies primarily that are lynched are not only lynched to take away their life, it's to show other people what could happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that lynch to me is an accurate term because of the vigilante justice, right, of, of, mm-hmm. of the people. And obviously that trial, you know, it just started, so they hadn't gone to trial. Obviously they're making some arrests, then, you know, they're going through the, the grand jury process. But I think that entire situation unlocked something in me recently where, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I typically, you know, I'm 40 years old. And so I, you know, I, I you know, it's, uh, unfortunately it's, uh, it's, uh, it's on repeat in the American soundtrack, right? Where, you know, a new hashtag, a new black person's killed, and we all have outrage, and then we go back to our normal lives, and then, you know, when we do this, it's just what we do. It's mm-hmm. as American as July 4th and Memorial Day. Um, <laughs> and I think for me recently, though, I feel this tug to, like, don't don't opt out, opt in, yeah. lean in, and not just about racial injustice, but it's renewal, reconciliation, and redemption, and looking mm. at um, diversity of thought and people and what is my role, right? So as a global leader of Patron Tequila, what am I doing to foster uh, inclusion? Uh, what mm. am I doing in my church community to call out, um, you know, parts of, you know, white supremacy that still exists in churches, that still mm. exists in the American church? Uh, mm. What am I doing to, to speak truth to that in my situations, et cetera? So I've, you know, for the past two weeks, honestly, I mean, I've been reading so many books and writing so much about uh, my experiences, you know, as a black male in corporate America, but also just a father uh, as a husband, um, you know, um, to, you know, a black wife and a, a black, black daughter as a black son. And I think for me, you know, as I zoom out even more, I realize this. Um, I was emailing someone last week, of, you know, about some board stuff, so, you know, because I'm in corporate, I, I sit in board meetings half the day or, and now I've also been on a nonprofit board. And I reflect on all these rooms I've been in from church meetings to board meetings, to corporate meetings, to organizational meetings, all across the world, all across the world in meetings. Mm. And I realized this, every decision that's made where you don't have a person of color, you don't have a woman that's at the table, that decision can never be as good as Mm. it could have been without those voices at the table. When Mm. we're making policies and laws, when we're deciding on projects, on budgets, uh, anything as simple as, you know, local legislation to government to things in our churches, man, I mean, and there's nothing against, you know, I have several good white guys who are friends. Daryl's a white guy who's my friend. And I have several white Don't guys tell I love. Anybody. We're not going to show them video. I have several white guys I love who are older white guys. I love them. But man, we have done ourselves such a disservice in our country, our communities, 
Um, no. Because we've silenced these voices. Like we haven't had diverse voices. We haven't, um, we haven't necessarily encouraged people to have opposition. We should encourage that debate. We should encourage uh, decision-making that brings voices together. It truly does bring the best of us together. And I think for me, it's been that mix of, in my corporate role and in my personal life, mm. how does that diversity come to life in a way that, you know, it, um, I'm calling out racism and I'm doing what I can to protect people who look like me, uh, but mm -hmm. also I'm doing things to bring in other people who are marginalized because I have privilege, right? I, I'm sitting here and, you know, on a podcast call and I'm privileged to have a job. I can be from home and I can take care of my kids, my wife, pretty much virtually, right? I'm, I'm, I'm non-essential, right? But I'm essential, right? It's this very weird thing where I have privilege that I can use. And so I feel a tug, man. So leading what's next for me is really about I think, leaning into that the narrative of race in our country and make, you know, having some uncomfortable conversations mm. and being okay with that. And we're, we'll unpack some of that on this podcast, but yeah. yeah, let's do it, man. It's coming. Well, and I think too, like a shout out to all my, my white Christian brothers, right? Like our job is to come alongside you in that. And I think that's where the church has gone wrong for the last 100 years as we've unpacked race, right? So if we as white male Christians, just that, like, let's just call that a baseline. If white male Christians would stand up and say that racism is a sin and it won't be tolerated, like our world shifts, it changes, right? Yeah. And that's what yeah. MLK was writing in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He was writing to moderate white pastors in the South who just sat on the sidelines when everything was going down. And he said, man, I'd, I'd rather you hate me. I'd rather you be part of the Ku Klux Klan than to be lukewarm. And I think that's what the Bible teaches us, right? Like, what's he say he's going to do with that lukewarm stuff? He's going to spit it out of his yeah. mouth. There's been these two histories, right? There's this history mm -hmm. of America's great and we're God-fearing country and God bless America and uh, all these great things about America. And then for people of color, especially, we're like, well, no, I mean, gosh, I mean, we can name, we, like, I know, it's like, I know more about the history of white America than most white Americans, because I know, because I've had to know, right? Oh, the, that president owned slaves, or yeah, that pastor at that church actually said this, or that that whole denomination of Christianity actually started off as, you know, pro-slavery, right? And so we, the African-American in America has had to almost do our own homework to put piece together the true history of America, right? And I think for us as Christians, right, our goal is to, we don't have to hide from that. We submit that to Christ, right? And I think our opportunity is going to be to like, um, God can God can renew it. God can reconcile the relationships. God can redeem us into His vision for a multicultural, a multi-ethnic church and body of Christ, right? So, yeah. this, to your point, start with the body of Christ. We're not even talking about anybody else. Let's start with this church. We can do it, mm -hmm. but it's gonna it's it's gonna you know, we have to go through some tough conversations, but be willing to do that. Uh, in the name of the gospel as well. And I, I think that's a journey we're all going to have to take. I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity to do that. And I think it's long overdue. And, you know, probably a little embarrassed that, you know, I mean, for 20 years, I, I didn't, it wasn't a big deal for me because I could take yeah. care of myself. And, you know, it wasn't directly impeding. But now I see that, uh, you know, unless we do it, me and you, our generation, mm -hmm. it's, it's not going to happen. If we're just being real, real honest, and I know we're on like episode one and we are already shooting flames, right? Is that most white men do not have 
other black men in their life that they would give their life for. I would agree. Right? Yeah. So the challenge for my white brothers is, is that, yo, you got to change your circle straight up right now, right? That whole thing about like, oh, yeah, I got a black friend at work or whatever. That doesn't cut it anymore. Does that black friend at work, do you know him enough to know the different sides of that black friend, right? Like, have you ever been to dinner at that black friend's house, right? Like, I think you, you need to get to the point where you understand that there are different perspectives, different backgrounds, right, that are not your own, and that's okay, and that you would be willing to die for a man of color. And when you get to that point, then you can be like, okay, yeah, like I start to see and feel the world very differently. Yeah, that's yeah, real. It's uh, James Clare, the author of Atomic Habits, a great, you know, great thinker. He had a post recently on his blog, jamesclear.com, on talking about why facts don't change people's minds, right? So, you know, every side, right? You know, there's sides to everything. Um, people just don't change. And he, he came to this conclusion that the only way to really change someone's mind is proximity. Got to get to know somebody, invite yeah. them to dinner, right? And I think the golden question to your point is, could this person come into your house and open your fridge, or could do you have refrigerator rights? Can I come in your house and open your fridge? Mm. That's that's when you know you have a friend, right? Like, like uh, you know, like okay, you come out, so you feel comfortable opening the fridge. That's when you know, okay, we're pretty cool. I, I heard a recent quote uh, from a, a black feature here in Texas. He said he said this, and I agree for everybody. This is your this is your like gold standard is this. It's if you have a black friend that doesn't talk to you about what it means to be black in America, you don't have a black friend. Mm. So if you've got a black mm. acquaintance, a person in your life who never talks to you about the racism, the injustice, the mm. oppression, or their history, or what they've endured, or their parents have endured, mm. they're not your friend. And I think mm. for us, as black people, we hold a lot of that in, like that black bag. It's it's, it's a whole topic. Oh, we, we'll talk okay. about it. You save but, that yeah, for it's, episode it's, two because that's know, a good one. Woo, we'll have to go in. We'll, we'll, we'll save a little bit to give a little appetizer. But yeah, so that's what I'm leaning into. That's what I'm learning, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm excited about it. Uh, we waited way too long to to get to this point, and I think you know we all hope somebody else can solve it. And here we are. So let's go, man. If you do not want to listen to episode two after that. Oh, I love it, man. I love it. Now, this has been great. I've enjoyed this time to connect, to learn what's going on with you, but also share. I hope it's been valuable for our listeners. You know, just unfollow, right? There's a path that you've intended to take. You've inherited it from your uh, parent, from a professional, a boss, or you've built your own path. You've been told this is the way. And I think there's areas where we have to unfollow. We have to get off the track get off the path and do what's best for ourselves, our families and our communities. And oftentimes that means letting go of something to lead what's next. So I love this opportunity to have this conversation. I'll see you guys next week. Bye AP. All right, man. Thank you. Hey guys, this is the unfollowed podcast with AP and DC. I hope you've enjoyed what you heard. And if you didn't, that's okay. There's a hundred thousand other podcasts out there, but if you did, we hope you subscribe and you share this with a friend. We'll talk to you soon.